Hello, my name is Shaman Foy, and you're listening to the Charles Bonnet Syndrome podcast. I am here with my co-host, Eva Potts, and today we have a special guest. His name is Ken Ellis, and this is episode number three. So welcome, everyone. How are you doing today? Doing well. Doing well, Shaman. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for joining us, Ken. And uh, we actually had a guest that was on another episode, and uh, her name was Antoinette, and that's actually Ken's wife. So she actually has Charles Monet, and Ken is a caregiver for her, and he's going to talk about the journey of being a caregiver for her and just share his story and maybe give us some tips and uh, look forward to this. So we will get right into it. So Ken... Can you tell me a little bit about your wife? She, I believe she has glaucoma and she had, her vision has been deteriorating for some time. Can you tell me about that process and, and um, you know, how that journey has been for you and her and, and particularly from your point of view, how you've been able to help her with that? Well, to tell you the truth, at base, uh, well, there's there's a Charles Benet answer, and then there's the long-term glaucoma answer. The long-term answer, the process is so incremental that I don't know how aware of it I always had to be over time. It, you know, for me, it's an element of my existence, you know, in the sense that it's part of the conditions in which I live. Uh, the notion of life being otherwise, I can't even imagine it because we've been together so long and this thing has also been so incremental over time. I just found myself learning whatever the new development is and being absolutely sure that there was a way to deal with it between the two of us because we're always the two of us. So I know that that doesn't sound like being able to give you the one, two, three of it all. But I have learned through life that things don't happen in the one, two, three of it all. <laughs> it, it happens yeah. seemingly more random than that. It's not random, but it seems so. It's actually a perfect answer, Ken, because my mother had glaucoma and incremental stages you're exactly right it's you you face it when it when that development happens and you try to figure out what to do to help them at that particular stage of the decline in their in their vision and prepare for the next step because we don't know when it's coming you know the thing that i did you know the stuff i get from it is more philosophical really than it is uh and yes, you develop new skills because you face new conditions. So um, I expect to do that always. So maybe if this weren't true, you know, in our lives, perhaps some of these capacities wouldn't be developed or have to be. Um, but at base is we're partners. So we share everything. And vision is one of those things in both directions. Yeah, that is so beautiful. And wow. as long as I try to keep that kind of view, 
then I think we'll be okay. Uh, you know, because you never know anything about whatever's going to come at you. You can only try to be prepared for each new turn. And also, I think, at least for me, it has been also to promote a certain notion, you know, between us. And that is, whatever your new condition is, how can you be effective in that condition? And that's on many levels, on a personal level, how you conduct yourself in your home. But on another level is how you conduct yourself in the world. And since Antoinette has been a professional, you know, for, for decades, it's essential. Figure out a way to make this, uh, um, you know, as beneficial as possible in terms of her life you know, to try to come up with a way to gain benefit. And that's a very broad term uh, from your new condition. As a caregiver, I was saying that we know that Charles Bonnet, the only way you can get Charles Bonnet is when you have a visual impairment or you're blind. So I just wanted to take a few moments to talk about her losing her sight before we jump into the Charles Bonnet. So I just wanted to know how have you been able to support her on this journey of losing her sight or how have you been able to cope with it uh, before we get into the Charles Bonnet? Well, I will tell you that over the years, well, first of all, it showed up in a very early time in our relationship. So it's been an element of 85% of our relationship together, in a sense, built in. So uh, it's really about being there for her as she faces each of those changes. You know, it's not, I don't have a particular experience with it because I have no idea about how life was quote unquote supposed to be. This is how it is. So that's how I meet it. So the only other part that I can really do is in, a, in essence, be what she asked me to be and try to hear the questions she can't say, you know, through other observational levels and things like that. And then just try to provide that, whatever it is. So everything from being an actual set of eyes to understanding the fright of no longer, or, or of having vision that changes in such a way that there are things you cannot see that come up on you. You know, that's a very, and when we're riding in the car, that's a big thing. You know, cars that were next to us pop in out of quote unquote nowhere, but that's because of her field of vision. Yes. So yes. you, so you have to be able to just be, I guess, as right of the thing as you need to be to address each emergent situation, which I guess on my part means trying to maintain a really good attitude all the time. You know, you've got to be able to respond positively, even to problematical conditions. Yes, yes, having a good attitude is so, so important. And she spoke so highly of you and how you help her and come alongside her, her journey. So I would like to pivot a little bit to Charles Bonnet. Mm -hmm. How uh, was it, well, first of all, when did you find out that she was seeing, having like hallucinations or experiencing Charles Bonnet? And uh, 
you know, how was that? How did that go? How did, you know, she bring that noise to you or did you start news to you or did you start noticing that on your own? What was that like? Well, it's a little bit of both. For example, there have always been uh, what you might call resonant imagery due to the glaucoma. So in other words, lights appear different than they are. Uh, distances are, uh, are indeterminate. So when, certainly when we are riding in the car, that really came up very early. Um, so I guess in that respect, I was attuned to the notion that there might be, you know, some sort of imagery shift over time. So that was the baseline glaucoma view. Now, Binet, well, we couldn't even call it anything until, you know, until she got a name for it. Uh, so there, the two, her becoming aware of what it was uh, is when I really started getting the fullest story on what she was seeing. Okay, certainly. So, so tell me a little bit about some of the, um, from your perspective as a caregiver, how has it been once she was aware of this condition, how has it been to, uh, help her and support her through this journey? And what are some things that you've done to be able to help you help her? Well, to tell you the truth, the first thing I needed to do was to believe her. You know, when, once she shared, started sharing imagery to believe her in the sense of how she sees it. Uh, which after being together for a lot of years, there's a capacity for that. Uh, and then it's whatever that imagery does. So in other words, let's say it's fearful. Now, mind you, she's not really prone to those kinds of responses to things. She understands that what she's seeing is, you know, a, a, a brain and optical system illusion. So her, her general response is annoyance. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 I think falls more on the annoying side. And then as she considers it in the early stages, when she did not know that it was Charles Benet, she thought she was going mad. And, yes. uh, you know, I had to reassure her then that no, going mad usually requires multiple factors, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, multiple events that occur of which seeing things may only be one. So she probably wasn't going crazy. Okay, that's that's interesting. So you always felt that uh, she was not, she didn't have, did you always feel like she didn't have a mental condition? Oh, uh, absolutely. Because, I, from, oh, okay, you knew that. You picked up on that right away. And oh, being oh yeah, husband, yeah. It never crossed, that okay. never crossed my, you know, entered into my belief system. I knew she wasn't because I deal with her every day. Something more has got to be crazy, that crazy, to be crude. I think Ken said something very important that if care, excuse me, if caregivers are listening or those with CBS have a way of communicating this to your loved one is that 
believe them when they're telling you that there's a problem and yes. you know trust that they're coming to you with trust um when somebody with charles benet opens up and and they're opening up to you that is huge for them that is they're telling you that they trust you with what they're about to tell you and i remember my mother when she first told me she was sitting in her chair in her home and she was a character and she looked over at me and she said do, do you see them and i said to myself uh-oh and i looked over at her and i said uh see what mama and she said do you see the children around my hassock and i said no mama i don't i said what are you seeing and she said well i am seeing about seven children staring at me they're between the ages of four and seven and they're in vintage clothing and they're just staring at me and i said hmm well i don't see them and i said well why don't you ask them to go ahead and go on their way and so she did and they disappeared that was the first time and that was several years before we knew well a couple of years before we knew what charles benet syndrome was and that that's what we were dealing with but it intensified beyond that point but i never forgot that moment and that's why when other people in our family were trying to uh slap mom with the dementia diagnosis or were saying it's got to be dementia it's got to be dementia i knew it wasn't because my mother had all of her, her memory from the time she awake, awakened to the time she went to sleep, she could tell you about her entire day. And someone with dementia can't do that. So I think that Ken, you, may, you, you brought up such an important point that I'm really hoping everybody's listening to because when that person tells you what they're going through, they're, they're basically begging you not to think that they're mad and to listen to them and they're asking for help. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, like I like I said, I knew, you know, I when I was young, a uh, young worker, I worked in the mental health uh, complex. So I had seen what really constitutes, uh, you know, severe uh, psychological distress. And it was always multi-symptom. Mm -hmm. So Antoinette was reporting a single symptomology. So I knew that it didn't even get near that. Which That's an important perspective. Which suggested to me that it was actually going on. And then, of course, we've talked about vision greatly over these years. So it was within certainly both of our capacities to imagine the brain creating stuff that wasn't like a deep deep dive kind of perspective uh and it didn't have meanings those old rigid meanings from earlier times you know where the only reason that you could be seeing things is there must be something wrong with you <laughs> and in fact yeah. no it may simply be a uh of functionality, which is which I think it precisely is. It's a functionality because you've had this brain that has been seeing for decades. And now you're denying it input 
Well, it's going to keep on working. And since it's going to keep on working, creating what you might call false imagery is a likely outcome. So beautifully stated, Ken. And you know that the fact that you had worked in the mental health profession prior or during the time that you may have been with Antoinette, I myself was in the field of social work. I dealt with people who had mental health issues or were dealing with dual diagnosis. And there are people who either, I believe, have caretaker capabilities or they develop those capabilities when they're thrown into it. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe being thrown into it is a little bit of a shock for the caretaker and for the person with CBS. You had a nice background. I had a nice background where I was probably more compassionate and patient with my mother as, as you were with Antoinette. But your relationship sounds completely special and beautiful even beyond that. But um, for those that are thrown into it, I'm sure you can understand the shock value they must have um, because some people aren't caregivers, but yet they find themselves in, in that, that situation. Role. Right. What would you be, what would your advice as, as somebody who's been in the mental health profession, I would love to hear your perspective on say um, somebody comes to you and says, Ken, my mom's got CBS and, and I, I'm not a caretaker. What kind of advice would you lend to someone who's been thrown into the caretaker situation? Well, the first thing I would say is uh, believe them. I mean, believe that this thing, this phenomenon that they are referring to is actually occurring. Because once you believe that, you've already leapt over the greatest hurdle to being effective. Then the second thing is whatever that circumstance is, like, for example, if they're going to report an experience as they are experiencing it, then you just really have to be aware of how are they relative to that experience. And and I don't want to be light, but I'm saying it may require anything from an immediate hug to having a discussion about it. Yes. Heck, you might find that having a discussion about it ends it, at least that episode. Yes. So I think that by engaging, if they will share it with you, most of the sharing, though, happens after the fact. And, you know, that's more reality. Could you please recommend what you would not do? Well, for certainly disbelieve, ridicule, or take them lightly in any way and that means being aware of it you'd be surprised how how many ways we can take people lightly i wanted the world to hear that from another individual because i can say it just from my perspective of, of being with my mother and watching the dual dynamic that went on between her family members that believed her were trying to understand her helping her cope with what she was going through, which at the time we did not understand. And those who ridiculed her, made fun of her, uh, which, you know, at the end of the day equates to emotional and mental abuse um, because that person, they, they draw back, they go further into isolation. And I believe it intensifies the hallucinations and it intensifies the severity of those hallucinations. How could it not? Um, because they're emotionally drained anyway, 
like you said, Antoinette saw them as a, uh, an annoyance, those hallucinations. Yes. And when, and when you're already annoyed, I can see where the annoyance would come in. My mother, like Antoinette was a very intelligent woman. She, she knew that they weren't real, but it was really difficult for her. And she was in that phenomenon where, uh, the Charles Binet syndrome, where they feel like they're not in their home, but they are, Mm -hmm. um, that the people around them, she knows who they are, but she believes that they're prototypes. That's actually a, a symptom of Charles Bonet mm. that we've discovered. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical professional. Let me make that disclaimer right now because we always have to do that in the support group. But this is a constant thing we hear over and over again. And I believe that that, that happens because of the severity. She'd also just come out of the hospital, which we also know is traumatic for people with Charles Bonet syndrome. And I digress. I don't want to go, you know, I want to kind of stay on topic here, but you're right. Not believing them, ridiculing them, Mm -hmm. making fun of them, telling them they're crazy or, you know, get over it. Um, Yeah, I've heard all of that. And uh, it's disheartening. And, you know, as a caretaker, it's also frustrating because you don't know what to do if you don't know what you're dealing with. And I think there are a lot of people out there when they hear this, they're going to say, wow, I think that's what my loved one is dealing with. And that's when you reach out to us and we get you in touch with Dr. Cusick and try to help you and your family. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so, yeah, thank you for sharing that perspective as well, because that is so important for people to understand. And, And those with Charles Benet, maybe select who you open up to. And if you feel like you cannot open up to a family member, Ken, would you agree with me that maybe try to find a a mental health professional to open up to, which that's kind of a sticky wicket. Absolutely. I'm saying that, well, in fact, it was funny. When you first asked the question, I thought, uh, what is the thing I would do? And I said, well, you know, you have to get used to and comfortable with it, with reaching out to people be they, you know, close people like family and acquaintances, but more importantly, to any professional, it's okay to seek out a professional for a problem that seems personal like that. That's the key time when you should reach out. I agree. Cognitive behavioral therapy, probably, and it, it, and it was, a lot later that we got that help from mom, but we didn't, we didn't realize it was a technique until we spoke with Dr. Cusick and we did not find Dr. Cusick for a little while. You know, um, here in the United States, you have to go to the UK and Australia, uh, to find help. (laughs) And you have Um, to be honest with yourself about what you're feeling. You got to call it what it is. Don't misidentify your own feelings or else you'll, you know, you will never be able to address perhaps what may be the most important stuff to address. I agree. I agree. And I think if you have not dealt with some very important and um, life, I wouldn't say life altering. So a lot of people who maybe should have sought out cognitive behavioral therapy or hypnotherapy or just opening up and talking to a counselor about some life events that have happened that have been challenging in their lives 
when the Charles Bonnet invades an individual or comes on, it can be two things. I think a lot of people can accept it and integrate it into their life. Other people are, are invaded by it. Mom was invaded sure. and or plagued as Judith Potts would, would call it. And she was also carrying a lot of emotional baggage, uh, a lot of emotional mother guilt, a lot of um, woulda, coulda, and should'ves. Oh, man. And I begged her Bad for years. To live. It is. And I begged her for years to get help, you know, talk to somebody. So when the Charles Bonnet comes on, all those things that aren't addressed, I, I truly do believe, again, I'm not a medical professional or a doctor, but I truly believe just from witnessing what mom went through, it exacerbates the Charles Bonnet because you see things out of, because you're still in that emotional state, you're still in that anxiety state. And we know Charles Bonnet does bring on anxiety. And so I implore those with Charles Bonnet, if you're also in a state of depression or anxiety, talk to somebody, even if it's not a mental health professional, talk to somebody that might be able to get you some help or guide you specifically where to go and get help. And as I mentioned to Antoinette yesterday, and to anybody dealing with vision loss, maybe seek out a grief counselor. Because when we don't address emotional issues in our life, they become grief. Sure. Would sure. you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's funny because I think she mentioned something uh, along the way uh, with regard to certain levels of grief. And I get it. You got to remember, this is a being that you were. You know, you have this being that you've known yourself to be, and that's being altered in a sense without your involvement. Mm -hmm. And that, it's grief. Come on, straight up. Yeah, the simple act of not being able to read the newspaper anymore was just so depressing from my mom that she sure. didn't want to get out of bed. Sure. And as her glaucoma progressed, she would read the paper with this, huge magnifying glass that I'm surprised she could pick up. Right. And with one eye, she would stare at the newspaper and read one word at a time if, if, if it had to be, because that was her passion. She wanted to absorb as much knowledge as she possibly could. And when that was taken away from her, her vision was everything because she just loved to read. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was hard for her. And, and, you know, when you're creative like that and your imagination is so um, prevalent in, in your life and, and she was very imaginative, um, it, it is a loss. So, you know, those that are going through CBS, I know you heard this on the last podcast, but, you know, if you're dealing with it and those who are taking care of your loved one, they are grieving. They're grieving a loss of, just as Ken said it so beautifully, of who they used to be. And Ken, I, I also brought up yesterday because it dawned on me yesterday that family members are also grieving because they're grieving because they're hurting for the person that's going through it, the person that's lost that sense, the person that's lost that, you know, gift of vision. Um, it could be anything that they lose, hearing, vision. It's hard for the family member to watch them go through it, even if they're very strong, because they're changed. From the person that we used to know yeah yeah ken i have a question you said that when you are riding in the car with antoinette 
it's challenging uh, because she gets uh, the, the visions and hallucinations. What are some things that you do to help you cope with that when it's happening? How do you respond when that's happening? Well, to tell you the truth, that's where I guess my particular personality features are kind of well suited. Uh, I'm not the most reactive person. So I'm, I'm have a built in a kind of step back and ask what exactly are you really looking at here type of person. So, uh, so I'm not sure that you would measure it in stress. Now there is some stress I'm sure, but I've got a belief about stress. Okay. There is stress and then there's stress that's more perceived than actualized. Now, mind you, both may affect you as heavily, but I've tend not to be prone to the latter version of it, uh, for whatever reason. So when the things come up, I'm usually about kind of saying, well, okay, just be calm about this. Because by the time we've actually had some words about this thing that she may have seen or not seen, uh, it would have passed us by then. And then she, you know, her field of vision will pick up and say, oh yeah, I guess whatever that was, wasn't what I thought it was. So that's typically how it plays out in the temporal experience of driving. My own feelings about it is, well, it depends upon how large her experience is. Now, if she's screaming, well, you know, that's gonna probably rattle me a bit, you know? And it might even cause me to be, you know, suddenly nervous about the road because I, I may accept that fear from her as the reality that we're living and then only learn, oh, okay, it wasn't that. Has that ever happened? Have you? Oh, it happens, it happens now and then over okay. the years. And it's not a thing, which is exactly why you hear a certain casualness in my talk about it, because it's just part of the landscape. You know, it's, uh, you know, I have to say in the end, it, for me, what this is about is managing my mental health. And a lot of that has to do with putting everything in some kind of perspective. That was true before I met my wife, because other things had happened in life that caused me to have to, you know, regard it that way. So in terms of my personal experience with it, uh, there are things that I understand one must be used to. Antoinette is going to see things when we're driving. That's that. End of story. Uh, to tell you the truth, uh, I would hope never to become so overcome by my own emotive response system that I cannot function in the world. That's a scary place that I hope not to get to. Wow. Wow. That is, that is, uh, some powerful things that you said. So, so looking at your own perspective, you know, taking control of your own mindset, your own stress level and controlling what you can control and learning how to respond appropriately to situations that arise with Antoinette. That's what I'm getting from what you're saying. Yes. Wow. So as you, you may know, some people, the Charles Bonnet is more severe than others, and some people are able to cope with it a little more better, I guess, for lack of better words than others. So there are some caregivers that are going through a lot and uh, it's very challenging for them. 
what's some advice that you would you would give to a caregiver who's maybe at their wit's end, uh, you know, caregiver of someone with Charles Vinay? Within themselves, they have to be able to learn to be calm as much as possible. It's an exercise, to tell you the truth, with oneself. Learn to get a little control over your way of responding to people and things. Uh, that's, that is of key import. Uh, then from that standpoint, when an episode emerges, you have this calm place. And I'm not, when I say calm, I'm, you know, I'm not thinking some extreme, but I'm thinking some place where you're collected and in control of your own responses such that you can pay full attention to the, you, the person for whom you care. So that in that instant with them, you can get as close to 100% hundred uh, percent coverage, for lack of a better term, you know, and as high a success rate as possible. Uh, so I would say that's the first place to begin. And then afterwards, it's really, it comes, it go, it comes down to believing what they're saying so that you can respond appropriately to what that moment is. And that moment could be anything from a hug to, you know, getting them their favorite tea or whatever it takes for them to sort of not pay attention to the, to the imagery in their head. I'm getting this sense lately that a, some kind of attention diversion may be a, may be a technique that might be useful. I've decided, you know, just in the past few days, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, okay, so, uh, because Antoinette has more severe, uh, experiences when I am absent from the home. So perhaps having me to attend to and with has some benefit with regard to the image making. You know, and I guess well, it's what your brain is doing. You know what I mean? So if you give your brain something else to do, maybe it'll do something else. I can see that, Ken. I can see because I think that's a that can also borderline on a trust issue and mm -hmm. uh, knowing that you're there, a safety. Sure. Uh, the feeling of that, and that's very important to somebody with CBS is, is feeling like they're in a safe place because when those hallucinations happen, for some of them, they don't feel like they're safe. They don't feel that they're in a safe environment because the hallucinations are so severe. Sure. And I would also uh, recommend, mom was a little more difficult to deal with because it, her hallucinations would scare her so horribly. And so she was a little more rattled and sleep deprivation was a big, part of uh, our caregiving. And if there's anything I can recommend, it's not easy if you're a full-time caregiver and, and especially if you're dealing some, but with someone with severe hallucinations that can't cope with them, sleep deprivation is a real thing. And caregiving, you know, having access to care, hiring someone to come in to give you rest is not always a situation that can happen for people. It's because of expense availability of family members who are willing to help out because too many people are so willing to, well, let just put them in a home <clears throat> or, you know, they probably need to go into a psychiatric ward and those aren't the answers. Mm -hmm. um, 
So that's why we're here is trying to help people understand sure. you don't have to go to those, you know, lengths to take care of your loved one. Is this difficult to deal with for some of them? Yes, it is. But let's try this step first to be a caregiver in the home, because as has always been brought up, and I think you would agree, Ken, people recover. Um, I would, I don't know if recover is a good word. They thrive. Sure more in their own environment, in their home where they feel, especially when you are visually impaired, knowing your environment is so important. Getting around, knowing where things are. When my mother had to come to our home, she was so lost. She'd been here, but when she had vision, and I don't know that she thought about where everything was, right? So when she came to our home, she kind of knew where she was, but just imagine at least she was here with, with people that she knew loved her. But imagine going to an assisted living facility or a hospital environment and having no clue where you are and who's around you. What a fear factor that must be for that individual. For sure. Thank you for your time. And uh, we appreciate that. And we will we'll definitely end, end this uh, call here. Did you want to like leave uh, any you know, contact information for anybody if they wanted to reach out to you. My email is uh, keproductiondesign at yahoo.com. Uh, that's probably the best way. Okay, I'll definitely leave that in the show notes too. And we thank you for your time and uh, have a good day. Thank you for sharing your story. You are certainly Thank welcome. you, Ken. Okay, all right. Take, Take care. care. Have a great day, everyone. Bye-bye.